This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed, York Region's longest-running and exclusive news magazine. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, a celebration of Black History Month, dry February for cancer research, and Senator Pamela Wallen's lessons from a purring companion. But we begin with the crisis in health care. Dire consequence. That is the language being used by prominent members of the medical practice here in Ontario if something isn't done to fix our crumbling health care system stat. Dr. Andrew Park is the president of the OMA and is armed for battle when it comes to protecting the health of Ontarians. He joins us now with details on the OMA's 11-point plan to rescue, resuscitate, and restore this province's health care system. Dr. Park, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you went before the Standing Committee on Finance and Economic Affairs on January 16th and presented your 11-point plan to fix Ontario's buckling health care system. It's in big trouble. Tell us about the timing of that. Why January 16th? Well, this is when the government's doing their... This is a period of time where the government's doing a lot of their consultation with different groups, and we were one of the groups. Um, along with grain farmers and the city of Kitchener. So it is very wide-ranging as to who presents at these uh, um, panels, uh, committees. And so we are one of the stakeholders there to present as they consider what they're going to include in their next budget uh, coming up in the spring. And what was the response? What, what did you feel? when? How did you gauge the room, if you will? I think the response was a positive one. There is there's very much a recognition amongst all political parties that the healthcare system um, is in crisis, and it's something that we need to address immediately. So let's talk about the crisis situation. What is going wrong in our healthcare system, and what is going right, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with what's going right. I mean, we have we have one of the most advanced healthcare systems in the world. I know it doesn't feel like it at times, but we do. We have incredible expertise. We have some of the world's best doctors. Full stop. We have one of the best. Uh, we have some of the best providers of healthcare in the world, and and I I don't think that can be understated. Um, where where I think we we have opportunities for major improvement are to really, A, look at the foundation because it doesn't matter how nice your house is if it's on a crumbling foundation, that's really important to address. And right now we are because primary care is a foundation of all good functioning healthcare systems around the world and ours is crumbling. So that can't be understated. The second thing that we really talked about was we need to, and this follows on the first one, is to say we we really need to allow doctors to be doctors and, and create a system in which doctors can do that as opposed to filling out forms and doing a bunch of administrative and bureaucratic um, tasks. And the last one is how do we integrate and coordinate our system better through a, a, a better access through uh, of home care and palliative care. So those are the three areas we're really focused on, and that's what we think can be done better in our system. So it's not just a simple fix of throw money at the at the problem. It's really understanding what the problem is and, and finding ways to make it better. So let's start with primary care. Why are there so few Ontarians with primary care physicians? Yeah, it's such a great question, and, and it, it, you're right. It is it is complex. It is multifactorial, but but there's a few reasons. From a training perspective, fewer and fewer graduates are going into family medicine, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And I'm happy to uh, expand on those. For those within within primary care, the model is changing, um, and and that's something that's important to address. This idea of kind of the solo family practitioner is going to be harder and harder to practice in the near future as our population becomes more complex and aged. Um, And so we need more resources in the system. And what we're calling for is team-based care to be the new model of care across the province. That does a couple things. It allows family doctors to add team members on so that they don't have to do it all, but they can have other people do the tasks that they're better suited for, like nursing, uh, physiotherapy, social work, dietitian, occupational therapy, whatever it is that the community needs. So how do you go from one individual who's got the family practice to a team situation? I'm not sure how that work works and how quickly it can go from one aspect to another. 
Yeah, it's a great point. I would say this. So let's say that you have a problem that you need to see your family doctor for. The reality is that you're seeing your family doctor because that's kind of traditionally what has happened. Um, But not all problems need the family doctor, but all problems should be monitored, I guess, as the family doctor is reviewing overall from from more of a management standpoint. And and certainly the more complex patients, the, the... but overall, the prevention, the trajectory of a patient should be managed by the family doctor. But that individual problem may not have to be. Um, so you sprain your ankle. It might be very worthwhile that the family doctor has a physiotherapist that can help take care of that and monitor that as opposed to the family doctor. So that's what we're talking about is to say, look, if we have more people as part of the team, then we can increase the capacity within the system, um, allowing us to take on more patients. Emergency departments are overflowing in Ontario. Is that because people are opting to go to Emerge rather than try to find a family physician or or get in to see their family physician? Yeah, so I work in an emergency department, and I, I'll say this. I, very few people choose to go to, uh, to an emergency department. I think a lot of them feel that they, there's no other option, and I think that that is fair. Um, so... Uh, Improving the system around primary care helps improve the system around acute care in the emergency departments for two reasons. Number one, those minor complaints um, can be better served elsewhere. But also, if we're thinking long-term and from a system standpoint, by having really good prevention or, or improved system of prevention um, in, in, in our healthcare system, it actually alleviates the downstream acute care system um, from, from from being overwhelmed as it is now. Can we talk a little bit more about Emerge? The wait times are really long. There's criticism about the care, uh, also concerns for the medical staff in Emerge about a lack of support mm-hmm. and, and, and people in one position having to do the, the job of several others. It's just, it kind of seems like it's a, it's a mess right now. It does. Um, and as I said, as an emergency physician, I, I, everything you're saying, I feel to my bones. Um, and, and, and I think it's the, the way I've always seen it is that the emergency department is the canary in the coal mine or it is a microcosm, whatever analogy you want to use of the system overall, where we have backlogs, where we it is because of a system that doesn't allow flow through through a seamless acute care experience for the patient is kind of how if we, if we zoom out like, you know, a thousand fold, that's kind of what's happening in our system is that we've got so many bottlenecks throughout the system that we just really struggle to alleviate for one reason or another. And that creates backlogs of patients. And in this case, it is in the emergency department. Can I ask you maybe a tough question? Uh, how does our healthcare system compare before pre-pandemic to now? How, how do you compare the two or can you? I mean, I can give my view on that. I think you know we're not performing as well, but but when you have when you have a once in a lifetime, even generational event like a pandemic, it, it just we're going to be having. Uh, you know, I I said that the pandemic was a referendum on everything we did prior to the pandemic. Mm. Now, post pandemic, everything that you know we were doing now is a referendum on the. The, the impact that the pandemic had on the system to begin with. This isn't something we're going to know for probably a few years as, as we try to unpack and really catch up with where we had these issues. The reality is that before the pandemic, all of these things that we're talking about existed. And either we didn't have enough action on them, we didn't take them seriously enough, or we were grumbling along to the point where we we're like, this is satisfactory. Throw a pandemic on that. None of it's satisfactory. And so now we're catching up, and catching up is always more expensive. It's always more time-consuming. Um, and, and that's the problem, and that's where we see ourselves in now. But the reality is if we don't do some of this catch-up, if we don't get ahead of this curve, it's going to be even more expensive and more costly in the future. So as president of the OMA, what are your doctors saying to you about the healthcare system right now? What do they want and what are they saying about their future within Ontario? So they're, they're saying that they've had enough. Um, this system was, and we all felt it prior, this system was frustrating to 
to work in and to navigate our patients through. Um, you know, when you're a doctor, you're, you're trying to diagnose and treat patients. And when you know what the patient needs and you know that we have access to it, but you know you can't get to that access point, it's extraordinarily frustrating. That's one patient. Expand that over the millions of patients that we see every single day, week, month, year, whatever it is. That takes its toll on practitioners in the system. And I'm not just talking about doctors. Um, so, you know, there's an extreme amount of moral distress amongst our members uh, because they just can't navigate their patients through the system. And, and it's leaving people, frankly, to leave. Now, I will, again, note that this is not a uniquely Ontario um, experience. Uh, when I talk to other presidents around the country or other physicians around the country, this is something that we're experiencing across the country. Ontario is just the biggest province. So we feel it on a larger scale. So you bravely went before the uh, standing committee on January 16th and, and outlined the 11-point plan. You've touched on several. Can we, what else, what else do we need to know about this 11-point plan? Yeah, so the other, the other one that I'd like to highlight is, is home care and palliative care. Um, we, you know, we have a lot of patients in beds in hospitals or long-term care that um, don't necessarily have to be there. If, the, if, if we had the resources to support them at home, where a lot of patients want to be, every day in the emergency department, family members will bring in you know, dad, mom, grandma, grandpa, neighbors, and, and say, look, they're really struggling at home. And we say, well, what do they need? And they say, well, they need a bit of, you know, whatever, occupational therapy, physical, and some nursing, TSW support. Oh, yeah, that's easy. We have that. Can we get it? No, hmm. we can't. And again, now that patient then says, well, what do I do? They end up in an emergency department waiting, you know, sometimes 20 hours. You imagine your 90-year-old grandma or whoever who's functioning okay at home but with some supports could stay there. Now has to go through a 20-hour emerge wait, uh, you know, a five- to seven-day admission where, you know, the, their muscle mass starts to break down and now they need more supports. Everything is always more costly downstream. Um, and so what we're saying is that, you know, it's, it's more cost-effective to the province overall to bolster access to home care so patients can stay home, um, then they don't need to go into the hospital, or we can delay hospitalization and admission to long-term care where patients don't necessarily want to be, but where they accept they need to be if they need those additional supports. If the Ontario government doesn't recognize what you have proposed, your 11-point plan, any aspect of it or all of it, when they put out their budget uh, coming up shortly, what's that going to mean to the healthcare system? You know, we've used that that headline, dire consequence. Is that the case if they don't pay attention, if they don't give you the money and the resources that you need in order to, to resuscitate our healthcare system? Yeah, I mean, we think so. I, I, healthcare relies on everybody having access to it. You know, it's, it's no good if people don't have access to it. Right now, we have 2.3 million Ontarians without a family doctor. You know, they have some access, whether it's walk-in clinic, emergency departments, or, you know, virtual options. But, but the reality is, is that they're going to be disadvantaged. They're going to be economically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. They're going to be, you know, relational uh, relationships disadvantaged. Because if you're always worrying about your health care, you're always worried about how you're going to access it, what that means for you as an individual, other things start dropping off. Like, you know, whether you're going to show up to work that day. Um, and, and it might not even be you. Imagine if it's your child. So these are really big issues. And... Um, I do fear for, you know, the province as we head towards this, you know, impending tsunami that's, like, very predictable, by the way. <laughs> like, this isn't something that's going to surprise us. It will not surprise us, and that's what we're trying to alert the government to. Predictable, also preventable. So my final question to you, as the president of the Ontario Medical Association, do you have the ear of the Ontario Health Minister? Yes. Um, I, I do believe we have the ear of the Ontario Finance, uh, sorry, Ontario Health Minister, but also the Minister of Finance, Treasury Board, where the money has to flow. I, I think they do recognize that these are major issues. Um, again, what their plan is, whether it's exactly like our plan or not, you know, time will tell, um, and we will be watching closely. Uh, we want to work with government. I, you know, this is not something where we're saying, you know. It's only it's our way or the highway. We want to work with this government, and they've been they've shown a willingness to do that. And we're taking that as a positive sign. 
but there's no sugarcoating where we need to go. Uh, otherwise, we will be in trouble. Excellent healthcare access to it for everyone. I know that that's your mission. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Park, for joining us on the feed. Very much appreciated. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. As we wrap up the first month of 2024, many are already preparing for dry February. Jim Lang with the Alcohol-Free Fundraiser. February is not just the second month of the year. For our friends at the Canadian Cancer Society, it's another month to go dry February to raise money for such an amazing organization in this country. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Sienna Van Dusen, the Advocacy Manager Prevention and Early Detection with our good friends at the Canadian Cancer Society. Sienna, how are you? I'm good, Jim. Thanks so much for having me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I know um, Phil McCabe, one of our great staff members here, has done Dry February before. I know we have a lot of family and friends who have done it. it. It's something that's really starting to gain a lot of momentum in this country. For the listeners who maybe don't understand, what is Dry February and why is it so important? Yeah, February. Uh, sorry, Dry Feb is a fundraiser that challenges participants to go alcohol-free for the month of February while raising funds for the Canadian Cancer Society. Uh, and it helps you feel the benefits of going dry while raising funds for world-leading research, compassionate support programs. And so it's a really good win-win situation. Well, and the other thing is, too, the timing of this, to me this year, is fascinating because in the last 12 months, we've had a number of in-depth studies from around the world showing that uh, what we thought was an acceptable number of alcoholic drinks a week for your health has now been reduced. So if you have uh, less drinks a week, it's better for your ch- for chances of not getting cancer. It is. Drinking any type of alcohol increases your risk of at least nine different cancers. Uh, over 40% people, percent of people in Canada aren't aware of this alcohol consumption uh, like link with cancer. And so to reduce your risk of cancer, it's best not to drink alcohol, but less alcohol you drink, the lower your cancer risk. And so it's for each of us to really you know, think of ourselves on a spectrum of risk and to figure out where we're comfortable uh, based on our own personal risk factors. And and now, if you want to be part of it, it's so easy. Go to dryfeb, you know, dry, D-R-Y, feb.ca, collect donations from your friends and family and be a part of it to help our friends at the Canadian Cancer Society. And what's amazing about it, since it started in 2016, I, I believe the number is over $13 million has been raised. That's correct. It is pretty astonishing and really exciting because we know that over 1.5 million people are living with and beyond cancer right now in Canada. So it's so meaningful to those families to have the support of uh, all of our dry feb heroes, as we call them, uh, this month. We can make a difference together. What kind of feedback do you get from people who have done it, gone dry for February? Yeah, so people report all sorts of benefits, uh, sleeping better, having more energy. And actually, enough of our participants find that it's such a positive experience that they'll continue uh, to drink less throughout the rest of the year. And so it's a good chance to uh, reevaluate your relationship, see how it feels, and perhaps, you know, take those next steps uh, beyond the month. But we start with those 29 days to, to give it a real go. Speaking of Sienna Van Dusen, the Advocacy Manager, Prevention and Early Detection with their good friends at the Canadian Cancer Society, part of Dry February. You can sign up now at dryfeb.ca, collect donations from friends and family like our friend Phil here at the radio station. And every day and every dollar will make a meaningful difference for those lives affected by cancer. Uh, I know I lost my father to cancer last year. There's probably nobody listening to you right now, Sienna, that hasn't had someone affected by cancer. And even all with all the money raised and all the work by the Canadian Cancer Society, we still have a ways to go. Mm -hmm, We absolutely do. And uh, every little bit will help us get a little bit closer to funding world-leading cancer research, providing those compassionate support care services to everyone who needs it, and leading change in the most pressing areas of healthy public policy. So lots of work to be done, but lots of support as well. And I know we're so grateful uh, to everybody who goes to drivefeb.ca and signs up to join this challenge. I know for some people listening, thinking, oh my goodness, a whole month. But really, when you think about it, we're so busy during the week. I know more and more people who just don't have time to have a drink of anything during the week because of their schedule, (laughs) have to get up early. So really, after a few weekends, the month's over, you've raised money, you've gone a month without one drink. And if you need a drink in March, it's right there. But one month, we can do it. 
can do it. And there's so many ways to spend our time that isn't in a bar or, or you know, cheersing those glasses. We can get out for some fresh air. We can move our bodies. And those are also things that we can do to help prevent our cancer risk. So, uh, yeah, like connecting in different ways. It doesn't mean that we're not having fun. And there's tons of tips and tricks on our dryfed.ca website to really make sure that everybody who's doing this can do so successfully and get through those 29 days with no problem at all. I think friends and family play a big role in supporting us with whatever challenge we take on, but particularly this one. Oh, that's a that's a great point. So for people listening, if you want the tips and tricks, you're thinking, I don't know if I can do it, they have steps to help you. Dryfeb.ca to sign up to help the Canadian Cancer Society with their pledge for Dry February. I know our Phil McCabe here at the station is going to do it. I know a lot of the staff members support him. He has a lot of friends and family, and it's become a thing that we're proud of Phil for what he does. And I'm sure there's someone in your office, in your school, in your life that's doing the same thing. So please, uh, if you can do it, do it. And then it's, it, you, you know, you'll feel better, you'll be healthier, and you'll help the Canadian Cancer Society. Mm-hmm. We've got thousands of people across Canada, so nobody's in this alone. And I think that's an important message for cancer, too. Nobody's going through uh, that cancer journey alone. So we're we're in it together, whether it's DriveFeb or, or that, you know, the support services. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, just the support of, uh, of loved ones. It goes a million miles, so no, it makes a real difference. Indeed. In closing, Sienna, I'm kind of curious, um, the numbers, how many people have signed up each year for dry February? Is it going up and up every year? It is going up. It's definitely becoming more popular. This year, we've got a goal for over 25,000 people across the country. So we're really hoping that everybody listening will be part of that. Uh, and, you know, this year, I, it's $2.4 million. That's our goal. And that's another thing that we're always trying to outdo ourselves and, and raise a little bit more every single year so that uh, that we're able to support all of those accessing our, our services with the Canadian Cancer Society. So we're so grateful for your support and the support of your listeners. It makes a difference. Well, it's our pleasure. I know that people listening can step up and help you achieve those goals. Get all the details. Dry Feb. .ca for dry February. Sienna, an absolute pleasure. Good luck. Thank you so much. You as well if you're, if you're joining us on this journey. <laughs> Coming up next on the feed, celebrations of culture. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Next weekend, the Aurora Black Community Association is hosting a gala to celebrate food, music, and culture. Glenn Perkins with a sneak peek. February is Black History Month, and what better way to get it started than with a celebration? To tell us more, we are joined by Fiona Durant, president and founder of the Aurora Black Community Association. Fiona, welcome to The Feed. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm very I'm excited about this. Thank you. What is the Aurora Black Community Association? It is a way to bring community together. It's about bridging cultures. We hear lots happening and talking about racism and this and that, and it's all great. But how can we bring people together? So our one goal is really to make our town more inclusive, a place where everybody from African, Caribbean, and the multiculturalism of Aurora can come together and, and, and bridge cultures and build a stronger community while, of course, dismantling anything that is any racism at all, anti-black racism, and just improve our community. So that's how we started. Was there one particular catalyst that created it four years ago? Yes. So as everybody knows, <laughs> is when George Floyd was murdered, there was this new awakening. Obviously, it was sad for those who already know that it didn't start there, but appreciated in a sad way that, unfortunately, the terrible experience of that murder resurfaced the issues that are always there for centuries. So when that happened, we see everybody in their grandma, for the lack of a better word, was having the solidarity march across the world, and that happened right here in Aurora as well. And so after that, I thought, then what's next? What does that really do for people now? Where do they go? And so all I did was ask people, you know, was there any white person that want to come cook with me? I think that food, you know, raised by my grandparents, I thought food would be the best way. 
for people to get together and connect and, and, and get to talk about those difficult questions that they may have after those rallies. And so that's where we started from. Food is definitely a great way to break down the barriers. Tell me about some of the challenges that the black community faces, not only in Aurora, but across York region. If I'm focusing on the fact that we saw passionate voices marching together in solidarity across the world, and yet as I find that yet as the marches faded, so did you know, the people. And so that's one of the challenges because I think a lot of us, and it's unconscious sometimes. We operate out of this virtual signaling or this instant gratification. And so now we see when we really want to have hands all, you know, gloves pull up and people around to do the work, you only find a small few. And yes, that's powerful to have those small few. But when you saw that the streets were filled with the march and now throughout the 60 when you want work to be done and voice and advocate and support behind you, you still have to be really digging deep to find someone. So that for me is one of the greatest challenges. We know that Black History Month is a great way to educate the community and you have something special coming up for this Black History Month, the Black History Gala. Tell me about that. Yes, so this is our second in-person. When we started, as you know, everything was COVID, so the first two was online. This is the second one in-person. It's going to be amazing. The theme this year, Glenn, is forward together and forward for all. And that really is important to us as an organization because we have to can move forward together. Nobody being left behind. And that's going to look different. That means it's not a, an exclusive block thing. It's a community thing. And so one of the person that is my biggest inspiration is we all know her, the Honorable Dr. Jean Augustine. And the thing that's, you know, reminisce, like, you know, stick with me forever is it is Canadian history. And if you live here and consider yourself a Canadian, it is Canadian history. So this gala is going to be an amazing part for us to come together, celebrate uh, with food and dance and, and awards and recognition, and also to thank and honor those who have been a part of this journey with us in the last four years. That's important, isn't it? It doesn't matter where we come from, but as we work towards being Canadians and working and living together, and as the Black History Gallery is going to show us, also having fun. Exactly, because that's the real truth, at least. You know, I want to also clarify that black people are not homogeneous, if, if that's the correct word, meaning we're not just one kind and we have the same thinking. So that's the beauty. You can see different association led by different people, different vision, but the goal at the bottom line is the same. And so if anybody understands the black culture, give us food, music, and good vibe, and everything is fixed. You know, we're not hard. <laughs> so food and, and fun is, is the focus and the basis. So whatever we want to do while there's serious time for those advocacy and those hard conversations, when we come to celebrate, it's about celebrating. Fiona, when is the Black History Gala being held? Where is it being held? And how can people attend? Definitely great question. So we are going to be, it's, it's happening on Saturday. Uh, we are starting, doors are opening at 6 p.m. And it's going to be right here in Aurora at the Northridge um, Community Church. It's here on Leslie Street. So it's 15338 Leslie Street in Aurora. And people can go to the aurorablackcommunity.com page to buy tickets, to learn more, to sponsor the event, to volunteer, and just to be a part of this amazing day that we have coming up. Fiona Durant, president of the Aurora Black Community Association, thank you for speaking with me today. No, thank you for having us. This is amazing and I really appreciate it. Thank you. For more information about the gala or to join the flag-raising ceremony on February 1st, please go to the aurorablackcommunity.com website. Next, we catch up with the first-ever all-black comedy tour in the country, Shaliza Bacchus, with this unique cultural event. We all love to have a good laugh, and the Unknown Comedy Club has announced the Underground Comedy Railroad, which is a stand-up comedy tour making eight stops across Canada in February. They're going to be visiting Toronto, Halifax, Montreal, Ottawa, and Vancouver. Even better, these showcases will celebrate the 12th anniversary of the Underground Comedy Railroad, which is an annual tour that has traveled across Canada for Black History Month since 2012. Joining me to talk all about this is comedian Keisha Brownie. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. 
I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. So, okay, tell us a little bit about the Underground Comedy Railroad. It's 12 years running and a very special thing to do to commemorate Black History Month. Oh, yeah, it's very, it's very special. It's been, uh, I've been a long time runner and it's, what's special about it, it's that it's co-created by comics, you know, like it's built from the ground up and every year we keep touring to different cities. It was co-created by uh, another comic in Montreal, Rodney Ramsey, alongside Daniel Woodrow. And every year we switch up the lineup because there's a lot of great Canadian black comics on the scene here. And, uh, yeah, it's been going great ever since. So with that being said, tell me about the comedy scene for Black Canadian comedians, because I'm sure it's not always easy. It's not always easy, but, you know, uh, it's getting much better. And uh, what the beauty about it is a lot of these comics are independent producers like myself as well, you know, uh, not really waiting for the doors to open, just creating their own doors and um really getting everyone from every nationality to perform comedy and, you know, being a boss about it. I mean, that's the best part. Absolutely. And what has comedy meant to the community and to the culture? It's definitely uh, a voice to share our stories, you know, share how we see the world. We, we have a different walk. And a lot of us in Canada come from the Caribbean you know, side. We are one, but we are many, though, you know, <laughs> definitely. And uh, I think it, it, it it's a lot. It's a great reflection. It's good to hear these stories and share it with, you know, other people as well. Just to really, at the end of the day, we're all just people having life experiences. And if you could laugh about the most embarrassing ones, hey, man, that's the best medicine in the world, really. Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And what can showgoers expect from this show? What type of comedy are we feeling? Are we making fun of everybody? Are we just having a good time? All of the above? I think all of the above, girl. I mean, with the current state of whatever's going on, the whole Cat Williams, I call myself Quiche Williams. We'll see what happens at the show. A little bit of everything for sure. Well, I hope you don't necessarily end up in his position. I mean, no. Definitely not. I. That's why I keep journals. You know what I'm saying, girl? That's why I keep journals. If anybody finds them, wow. Wow. <laughs> I feel like Cat Williams is just a conversation for another day. That's a whole different yeah. conversation. I don't know why. Yeah, I totally promoted him. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, back to February 3rd. I mean, I really, really want to get that out there. Um, simultaneously, I don't know, with this tour, it, it's... Uh, I normally produce the Brampton side of the tour and... Ironically, we have two shows on the same day. We have one going on in Toronto and one that I'm producing um, in Brampton. It's called Stand Up Stitches. And I'm also showcasing a lot of hilarious comics in the scene. There's just going to be a lot for people to do in February, I think. That's so cool. Tell me a little bit more about this Brampton show. Is that something you newly started producing? Well, it started in the pandemic, actually. In 2020, we started virtually just like this on Zoom. And uh, we brought it gradually to the stage and it's been selling out ever since. So, and we've had some really great comics come on the show. Kenny Robinson was on the last show and he's definitely, I mean, you can't not mention his name in Canadian black comedy because he's definitely paved away with his monthly show, The Nubian Disciples. It's been the longest running Canadian comedy show in the scene. So yeah, it was really admirable to have him on. It's just nice to bring comedy in the suburbs I mean, Brampton, right? Uh, what has it been like collaborating with other artists and comedians and things like that? Oh, it's great. It's like, um, you know what it is? It's like your other toxic family members. We're just <laughs> all, it's the camaraderie is great. You know, it's like, and we're artists. We're so we share the same passions. We go through the same struggles. So it's really, it's really important to surround yourself with people who love the same thing you do. So it's really, it's really good. Amazing. And uh, tell me a little bit about this CBC Gem special you've got coming up. Oh my gosh, girl. I know I'm telling everyone to videotape it. I can't watch. I can't watch myself. Really? It's so strange. It's so strange. I get shy. I just start pacing. You know, I think 
I think I feel the same way too because I I can't really listen to myself sometimes. If I hear myself come on on the radio, I'm like, mm, no, change. Right? Yeah, same. Not listening to this interview at all. I'll tell people about it, but me, you can listen, but I'm not listening. Okay, well, we'll listen <laughs> for each other. There you go. We, if we do want to watch your CBC Gem special, what's it all about? Is it just you? Yeah, uh, no, it's, um, you know what it is? It's the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. They've been running this festival for, I think, over 10 years now, showcasing, you know, the best of the best in Canadian comedy. And uh, special to me, it's my first television, well, not really my first, I've done Just for Laughs, but this one I'm just really telling people, hey, tape it. <laughs> um, no, it's great. It's airing on CBC Gem. I think it's February 16th at 8 p.m., and uh, it's a cool festival. Everyone really comes out and supports in Winnipeg. It's, it's a great town. They're very supportive at a great time. I think this just reminds us how amazing the community and the support is across the entire country, not necessarily just here in Toronto. I know we've got a large concentration here in Toronto, but, you know, it expands to the whole country. And I think that is shown with the Underground Comedy Railroad Tour. You're making stops across the entire country and you've got people coming out. Yeah, Exactly. It's really groundbreaking. It's good. It feels good. And so, if we want to get if we want to get tickets and uh, maybe catch a show, where can we go? Yeah, definitely. You can definitely uh, head on over to well, if you want to head on over to Stand Up Stitches on February third in Brampton. That's my sole produced show. You could uh, head to the Rose Theater website. They have tickets there. We're doing a seven thirty show. It's going to be really hot. We got Arthur Simeon headlining. We got Evan Carter. It's you guys. It's going to be great. And you could head on over to my website. It's www.gotbrownie.com. There's ticket and information there. And about the Underground Comedy Railroad tour, you can definitely hit that up at undergroundcomedy.ca. I know there's a lot of words. There's a lot of words. Or you could just follow me on Instagram, Keisha Brownie. That's the whole hub. It's everyone's on Instagram, right? There we go. You just answered my next question. See, you're a professional. <laughs> Keisha Brownie, thank you so much for joining me. We're looking forward to the laughs and we're looking forward to celebrating Black History Month. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Keep supporting this network, this channel. Oh, we look so good on the radio. You guys have no idea. After the break, former journalist, senator, and now author Pamela Wallen with Cat Tales. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Pamela Wallen has accomplished a great deal in her life so far. She's an award-winning journalist, renowned broadcaster, former Canadian Consul General New York, an officer of the Order of Canada. She has 14 honorary doctorates and was once the Chancellor of the University of Guelph. She is now the Honourable Pamela Wallen after being appointed to the Senate of Canada in 2008. But what really has people talking from coast to coast to coast is her newly released 20th anniversary edition update and modernized book about cats. Yes, cats. <laughs> True tales and life lessons from a purring companion. Senator Wallen joins us now on the feed. Welcome, Pamela. It's so great to have you with us and, and happy to be together again. Yeah, it's. I haven't talked to you in ages and we actually worked together and kept in touch for a long time but then when I went off to the States so I hope you're well too I see you popping up on television screens and I hear your voice here and there so it's all great. Absolutely and we're, we're both still movers and shakers aren't we I like to think we are. <laughs> of course we are. So of course we are. why Pamela release a newer version of the book <laughs> that you wrote early in the early 2000s called The Comfort of Cats so, so why why a book in the first place about cats and now again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's a, it's a strange story, but because I, I really started my life out as a dog person, but I ended up through just a series of flukes, babysitting, cat sitting for a friend. And into my home came this gorgeous little chocolate point Siamese. 
And I, I, I just fell in love. I, I'd never actually thought of a cat as being that graceful and that beautiful. I mean, where I come from, cats are in the barn killing mice, you know, that sort of thing. So it was, uh, and of course the friend came back and I had to give the cat back against my will. Uh, so I, I set about finding um, one of my own and and she it was just it was a sad story I went out to uh, a breeder that the female of the breed is very hard to come by so I went racing out to the woman said she had two females and I got there and she said oh I'm sorry I sold the female and I said but you said you had two and she said yes well that one's there's the run to the litter but it won't make it and I just picked her up and put her in my hand and paid the woman and she said you don't get your money back if she doesn't live and I said oh. I don't care no no it was awful I know it'd and be terrible. so we took this little one she just spent the first few weeks right on my heart because they love a, hu- a heartbeat you know oh, just yeah. right there gives them comfort and so I just I was I fell in love and I had this amazing uh, friend and companion for 19 years. 19 so, of a cat, a kitty 19. cat that wasn't supposed to live, lived for 19 <laughs> <Exactly>. years. Exactly. <laughs> it's fantastic. I well. love the fact that you called her kitty. Now, in my experience, I, I, I had a pet rabbit. I named it Bun. I had a pet clam, and I named it Clammy. So I, I kind of understand where you're going with your cat named Kitty. <laughs> well, I tried to do... Um, the original Egyptian name, which was Kedi, K-E-D-I. But it, whenever I said it to anybody, they went, what? You mean Kitty? So I just went with it, and she was happy with it, and I was happy with it. So this book, and, and, and having being a journalist, you know, you, you start out to write just you know, a cute little book about cats and you're going to put some nice pictures in, but then you start to do research and then it gets intriguing and then it gets interesting. So I, a friend of mine who now runs a little publishing company says, why don't we do kind of an updated version uh, for the twenties at this point? Because so many people during the pandemic returned to pets, returned to cats, returned to animals. They thought that kind of comfort and I just uh, I thought it was just a good time to remind people that it's okay uh, to really embrace the relationship you have with your your animal I hesitate to call cats pets because they don't agree to that (laughs) Uh, you're lucky you're lucky that they let you live with them exactly (laughs) provided you you know do everything they demand immediately of course Um, very different than a relationship with a dog, but it was I just so many people I talked to throughout the uh, the pandemic really survived because of the creatures they had in their life. Otherwise, they would have been quite isolated. So it just it kind of tweaked me to to do this again and update it. You know, it's interesting. There are a couple of parts of the book that really got me in the heart and the gut, and you name it. First of all, your relationship with Kitty and what she meant to you and what she helped you through. You know, people love the fact that you let your guard down in order to to tell us all about the things that you've had to go through in your life and the support of Kitty. The other part I like is the the history of cats. You know, you you brought up Egypt. I, my cat, I have a cat named Harry. I lost Scarlet about a year ago to cancer, but Harry is drawn to anything hot. The radiator, the, the yeah. fireplace, oh, yeah. and, and so my understanding... The top of the, of the fridge. Yes. The, <laughs> the origins, you know, back in very warm places like Egypt, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Where, we have to say, they were treated as goddesses and never sort of forgot that. Uh, (laughs) You know, a lot of the uh, Egyptian lore is about... Creature, you know, uh, a female body with a, a cat head, and yeah. there's they're in the uh, the early paintings and drawings, and they're everywhere. I mean, in Europe, in wars, on ships, you know, they have been a part. They've been around for twelve thousand years, so Amazing. they're really part of the big story. And there are a lot of superstitions surrounding cats as well. Yeah, yeah, which I yeah. find, and some of them are not that great. You know, I I feel for black cats around the world because they are given a, a kind of a bum steer. 
Yeah, and it's not really true. I mean, there's very different stories about that. And and the nine lives is just, you know, the trinity of trinities, three being a lucky number and and the, the three times three. Like, they are really, they are injected what my one of the most powerful things for me and of course i read this book when i was a young girl which was the diary of anne frank um and it seems today to be resonating so profoundly uh, as we watch things unfold in the mid-east but here was this young girl trapped um, awaiting the inevitable fate she had a cat which i think was very key to her survival but she called her diary which millions have now read she called the diary kitty wow. uh, which was a separate you know separate yeah. from the cat obviously yeah. so to me that really resonated it yeah. really touched me and and you sometimes just forget how present they are yes uh, in our culture in our in our art and writing, they're there. They're very much part of our, um, I don't know, a more uh, connected part in a way. Than, than other animals in our lives. And such a meaningful past as well. You know, and if we understand mm-hmm. the past and bring that into the future, it makes such a difference. Speaking of the past, it's my understanding, and through the book, that cats have inspired some of the world's greatest authors, people like Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway, Rudyard Kipling, and you. Well, the, people just, the way that people write about this, you know, George Will, a, a gruff, rough political columnist in Washington, talking about, you know, if you have a cat in the house, you don't need art or a vase because <laughs> they're such beautiful creatures. It's just, it is quite stunning that, you know, and I forget who said it, whether it was Twain, it might have been someone else who just said, you actually can't be a writer without one, um, without a cat, because they're there, they they come and sit, and I know Kitty would do that, I mean, she was there at every moment, but certainly um, through the writing process of doing books, or the homework that we all do when we're doing interviews, and you know, you know that from our shared kind of experience you do an awful lot of work on your own and she was always there trying to you know help quote unquote (laughs) in her own way but but you know through divorces and illness and cancer and even migraine headaches which i have and and she would wake me up uh early early in the morning knowing i would have to go to work so that i could take the medication because you wouldn't know yourself until you woke up and then you know your day would be shot um they're very intuitive they when they bond with you they literally are part of you when you lost kitty that you must have lost a piece of your heart has there ever been a, a kitty the second I'm I'm hoping someday when I'm not working crazily, but uh, she actually um, she she died just before I got the call and the invitation to the Senate. So it's almost if she she knew that as well because yeah. this process of going from Ottawa to Saskatchewan, no direct flights, winter. I made the trip just yesterday. Yesterday was 14 hours from um, leaving my door in Saskatchewan to walking into the office in Ottawa. So you can't subject a creature to that. It's bad enough that we do it to ourselves. So maybe when I'm long (laughs) retired, there will be another another beautiful little... um, creature in my life. Well, that that's not going to be for quite a while. I can tell you that knowing <laughs> I you as know. I knowing you as I do. Days I think it should be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Say it ain't so. So, I, I a couple of years ago, someone said to me, "Oh, Anne, you are a cat lady because you have yeah. two cats." And he looked his, down his nose at me, and I was, you know, I was initially offended and then I thought, "No, you're just s- silly. You know, you're 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 the one who's <laughs> not not running at full speed." I am proud to be allowed to have Harry in my life and, and at one point Scarlet. Why is it that people kind of go poo-poo when they hear that you have a cat? 
Well, because it is, um, dogs are so much more present and aggressive and, and you know, um, young men and women take their dogs to the park and it's a whole social thing and they meet each other and it's, it, it's just, it's, it's an external uh, relationship that is, is more acceptable. Cats tend to make people think that you're at home by yourself with the <laughs> curtains drawn, um, you know, and never leaving the house and eating scraps of food. Like, it's just, it, it's, I think, and I was my own level of ignorance about these animals too, um, that I didn't appreciate the, you know, the intensity of the relationship. Now, I don't know too many people that take their cat for a walk, so it's not social. It doesn't take you out into that world. It does tend to, um, your time with them is, is one-on-one yeah, in that, yeah. you know, in a, in a greater way. So I think it's just things that people don't understand, and people always tend to uh, denigrate that which they don't appreciate. I totally agree with you. So I'm going to ask you the burning question, and there, you always end an interview with it with the burning question. What, <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned about yourself, Senator Pamela Wallen, through the comfort of cats then, and true tales and life lessons from a purring companion. Now, what have you learned about yourself? Not about cats, just about you, Pamela. Well, it was a little something that I knew already, but the control freakism, um, <laughs> the, the lack of patience, the let's get it done yesterday, the kind of the steady drumbeat of if you're done that, then move on to the next thing. Um, and I think what, you know, it was through the illness, but um, when, when, and it was, whether it was a broken leg or cancer, when you're actually confined and you can't run around like I tend to do, she would come and sit and she would just almost speak and say, just take a breath. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about this. You can't fix this. So go with it. Wow. And that was just something I'd never actually been able to do on my own. So she guided me that way. And then re, you know, going through this again and kind of updating it because everybody that's groovy has a cat, you know, <laughs> like uh, Taylor Swift and yes, everybody. Yes. And, um, but it just reminded me that now they just exist on another form. They're crazy on the Internet. There's a bazillion um, cat videos and all of that stuff online. And that's an important part of them remaining a key part of our culture. So as I was going through it all, it just reminded me of that again, which is just stop and breathe. Yes, you think what you do is changing the world, and maybe in some tiny little way you're you're making a dent, but don't forget to enjoy life along the way because it's about the people. It's not just uh, about the outcomes of the 22-hour day, you know, that's, uh, you, it's about the people you meet along the way, the people whose lives touch you, and then if you can touch theirs, that's what all of this is about. So she brings it back home. She brings it back to reality for me. Here's to the memory of Kitty, the beautiful Kitty. And I've got to tell you, cats have evolved over the centuries. You have evolved over the decades, and you are, <laughs> you're, you're just a wonderful human being. Senator Pamela Wallen, True Tales and Life Lessons from a Purring Companion. It is, in my view, a perfectly positive read. I I just love it, and I think you're fantastic, and thank you for celebrating all things cats. It makes a big difference. Well, right back at you, Ann Wilmer. That's great. (laughs) Thank you, Pamela Wallen. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.